so much, Max. Thank you so much, worship team. Good morning, everyone. Well, as Tara said, it's great to hear everyone is awake and alert during this time of worship, not just with the time change, but also just really, really cold weather in March. So uh, praise God for coffee, right? Uh, and also praise God for his Holy Spirit being present in this place. What a, an incredible morning of worship. Thank you again, worship team. Uh, happy spring break to all of our students in here. Uh, and as a response, we send our prayers and extra grace to our parents this upcoming week. Do not grow weary in doing good, fight the good fight, and other Bible verses that I can take out of context to encourage you all as parents this morning. Well, it's a privilege to be preaching to you all. If you have your Bibles, we will be in Romans 8 this morning, and we will be in verses 18 through 30, the verses that Lisa Newsom read for us earlier. It's exciting to be back in our study of Romans. Well, it has been almost a year since I graduated from seminary with my Master of Divinity. And as I reflect on those four years of deeply studying God's word, uh, I can't help but be thankful, ultimately, for all the experiences that I had. I'm thankful for my professors. I'm thankful for the friends that I made in school. Thankful for the church family that I grew close with while I was there. I'm even thankful for the season that I worked as the campus mailman. Uh, giving packages to students and even driving around campus in a really creepy white van that still ran even when you took the keys out of the ignition. <laughs> Thankful for a lot of my experiences. But at the same time, I'll be honest, I'm also glad that it's over. I'm glad that it's over for a few reasons. First of all, dorm room wasn't the greatest not the greatest conditions. There was a professor that joked with me that, yeah, we usually put students in those dorms that we think are cut out for missions just to give them a taste of what the field will be like. <laughs> like, well, that's encouraging. And while I enjoyed most, if not all my classes, there were some classes that I took that were quite overwhelming. Uh, for those who are in seminary at this point or who have taken seminary classes, yes, I'm talking about Greek and I'm talking about Hebrew, okay? I've, many hours of studying, and many hours where I walk away from studying, still having no idea what I just read. There are also many times where finances were a struggle for me. Uh, surprisingly, being the campus mailman didn't pay extravagantly. And there were some semesters where I had to pay for some of my classes just out of my own pocket. And probably the biggest struggles for me, for my first two years when I was on campus, was being in a new area by myself and trying to make friends at school and at church. I can be more of an introvert by nature, so putting myself out there was a challenge for me. And that was the first time I really had to do something like that. And not only was I struggling with that and feeling alone in a new area, I was also still processing the loss of my mother. She passed less than a year before I went to seminary, so I was still working through that and learning how to live life without her. And then in my last year, one of the biggest struggles for me, my last year with seminary, I came here to work as a director of student ministry, and I still had to be a full-time student in that process. So while I was trying to get adjusted to full-time ministry, I was also translating all of 1 John in Greek when I got home. So that wasn't quite relaxing whenever I got off work. A lot of difficult moments a lot of pain and a lot of suffering in my time in seminary. And yet I say now 
that having completed this degree and being done with it, I can say that being done and completed far outweighs any of the difficulties that I faced back then. The Lord gave me a lot of grace during the difficult moments. And while I was groaning and waiting for the day of graduation to come, finally getting to that day was so much better and far outweighed the moments of struggle. Now, why do I mention all of this? Well, because perhaps maybe you've experienced that the completion of something far outweighed its difficulties. Perhaps you're crazy and it's about finishing a marathon. Perhaps you've actually ran a marathon before. I don't understand that. I can't relate to that. Perhaps it's finishing a degree. Uh, for mothers in here, childbirth. And that while you remember how hard those moments are on many occasions to keep going, you sit here now on the other side of the blessing, on the other side of this saying, finishing this was so worth it. And this was so much better than the trials were actually hard. And as Christians, we at this present time are in a time of difficulty and in a time of suffering. And that while we have experienced the grace of Jesus now, we are still living in a world of brokenness and living in a world of pain. And we are waiting for this pain to end and for us to get on the other side of this. And perhaps while we are in this world, in this present time, some of us may wonder if the other side is even coming at this point. That we've become so worn down and so fatigued by the marathon that is the Christian life that we wonder if there even is a finish line. And even if there is a finish line, we may ask to ourselves, is making it to the end going to be worth the run? Well, my prayer for us this morning is that as we read the passage we're in, that we may be encouraged in our present sufferings. Two, that we may be assured that the future to come is indeed on its way. And this future is so much better than anything that we are dealing with in this present time. Well, the title of the message this morning from Romans 8, 18 through 30 is Suffering and Glory. Suffering and Glory. We'll make a few observations of the text and then we'll close with application. Well, the first application that we can see is we see present sufferings. Present sufferings. Before Paul picks up in verse 18, uh, he states in verse 17 that believers in Christ who have the Holy Spirit are heirs of God and are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And what Paul means by this is that as an heir of God, we have God himself as our very inheritance to come. And that the new earth and the new heavens will be perfect and wonderful in every way for us, but that is only because God Almighty will be there with us. But here is what Paul also says in this verse. This is the truth for believers, provided we suffer with Christ. God will be ours forevermore. And everything that the Father has given to Jesus will also belong to us. But in order to share in the glory of Jesus, Paul says that we must first share in the sufferings of Jesus. And getting into verse 18, we see that these sufferings are what we experience now in the present time. 
And Paul will talk about here in a minute about the present sufferings of believers later on in this passage. But before that, he begins by going into detail about the present suffering that is first experienced by creation. By creation. Suffering is not just experienced by humanity. But Paul says that everything else around us in creation is suffering in this present time because of the curse of sin. In verse 20, Paul describes creation as subjected to futility. And in verse 21, he says that the earth is in bondage to corruption. Creation is suffering. Creation is dying. It's decaying by the second. And we can look around us and we can observe nature isn't functioning the way that God had originally designed it. And this is all because of the curse of sin. You can go back to Genesis 3 and the first sin in the garden. And as God judges Adam, God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. This world is corrupt and it became corrupt and cursed due to sin. And this not only applies to plants and to thorns, this applies to all of creation. We can think of natural disasters such as hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes or tsunamis or floods. This also applies to famines and droughts where food is more difficult to produce. We can think of diseases. We can think of viruses. And we also can apply this to all the other different creatures that are among the earth. Animals are hostile toward one another and even towards humanity. Animals are also becoming extinct, either because of the environment. Everything around us has become distorted. And we see in verse 20 that this corruption and the futility that creation is experiencing is not something that it willingly signed up for. But it's subjected to futility due to God's judgment of sin. As we just sang, creation is groaning. Verse 22, creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Again, this also points to Genesis 3 and how the curse of sin has multiplied the pains of childbirth. And just as a woman groans and suffers in childbirth, creation is also waiting for its pain to end and for deliverance from this. Verse 19, it waits with eager longing. Verse 21, it waits to be freed from its bondage to corruption. Creation is suffering and it's begging for its suffering to end. And then Paul says that it's not just creation that's suffering at this present time, but it's also those who belong to Jesus. It's those who belong to Jesus, believers in Jesus. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. Believers in Jesus are described here as having the first fruits of the Spirit. And that means that while we are definitively saved in Christ, we have not yet been fully delivered from this world. That God's saving work in us has not yet been completed. And while we are now adopted children of God, the reality is we are not fully home just yet. 
And that while we are spiritually alive and while we are redeemed in Christ, our physical bodies are still fragile and they are still corroding in this world. We still suffer in this broken world with chronic illnesses and diagnoses that leave us limping through life. We suffer in this world with the death of loved ones. Some of us in here may be wrestling and struggling with some type of anxiety or depression. We all wrestle with a sinful nature that still wants control over our lives, even though we are redeemed. Perhaps we're being persecuted for our loyalty to Jesus. And we also suffer simply through seeing the rest of the world suffering. We see the natural disasters that take the homes and lives of millions. We see the sufferings of our brothers and sisters here at West Park. And deep down, we think to ourselves, naturally, this world and this life is not what it should be. Something's wrong here. And so we, too, like creation, we groan. And we're not only groaning because of our suffering in this world, but we also groan because we're waiting for all of this to be made right. And in verse 23, as it says, we wait for this to be made right eagerly. And in verse 25, we also wait for this with patience. And so we suffer in the presence, in the present, but what we long for is the second observation of the text, and that is the future glory the future glory. As Paul describes the suffering of this present time experienced by nature in Christians, he also describes, as he says in verse 18, the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so what is this glory to be revealed to us? Well, Paul gives us a few hints here. Paul says in verse 19 that creation is longing for what? The revealing of the sons of God. In verse 21, he says that creation hopes to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 23, believers in Christ wait eagerly for the complete adoption as children of God and the redemption of our physical bodies. And so what is this glory to be revealed to us? It's when God fully restores all things. And it is when we, as God's children, become fully adopted and we get to go home to be with our Heavenly Father for all of eternity. It is when the glory of Jesus Christ is fully given to us as well. And we will be fully restored, not just spiritually, but also physically with resurrection bodies. Jesus is righteous and holy and sinless and pure. And if we are united with him, we will also be these things. And as a result, we will also be glorified with him. And as Paul says in verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This glory that we will experience this salvation, this adoption that will be completed. Paul says it is so much weightier and it is so much more significant than our present sufferings that it's not even worth comparing them. And Paul isn't undermining the sufferings that we face. 
You see in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, Paul experienced suffering to the point that he despaired of life itself. Paul knows suffering. He's felt the weight of the present suffering. But as he contemplates the full restoration of believers from God, and as he contemplates the full glory of Jesus Christ and our complete adoption into his kingdom, he says that our present suffering doesn't hold a candle to the glory that is to come. It would be a waste of time to weigh the present sufferings and future glory on a scale. It would be like putting a feather on one side and then putting a cinder block on the other. It's just pointless to do it. The future glory far outweighs our present suffering. That we are saved in Christ now, but we hope with certainty the complete salvation later on. We groan in the pains of childbirth now, and we long for the full deliverance to come. We have experienced the first fruits of this salvation, but we are waiting for the harvest that's on its way. And this harvest is coming. And this harvest of salvation will far exceed the suffering and the pain that we have experienced on this earth. And so when considering this future glory, we as believers have hope. Verses 24 through 25. For in this hope, the hope that God will restore all things and fully redeem us, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This observation is so sweet to think on and to hang on to now. The difference between us as believers and the rest of humanity in regards to present sufferings, the difference is that we as followers of Christ, we have the true hope. And we hang on to this and we wait for it eagerly with patience. And while this future glory is something that we can look forward to. The comforting truth is that God does not leave us in this present time alone to continue to suffer. God does not say, I'm gonna take care of you in the future, but until then, you gotta figure it out. (laughs) What we see in this passage is our next observation that by God's grace, while we are suffering in the present time, we are given present help. Present help. Yes, we hope for this future glory and we wait on it eagerly and patiently and we take heart knowing that this glory will far outweigh our current experiences. But Paul also writes that while you wait on the future glory, God is with you now and is helping you now in your sufferings and in your weaknesses. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When we are suffering now, Even when we don't know what to pray for, God meets us in our weakness and that he helps us to pray to him. 
through the Holy Spirit inside of us, Paul says that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, this doesn't mean that when we groan just randomly, we can just credit that to the Holy Spirit, right? This isn't, this isn't like home improvement where Tim Taylor says, ooh, 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 and that's, we can just say, oh, as believers, that's the Holy Spirit, right? We can't say that. But what Paul is saying in this is the Holy Spirit prays for us on our behalf, and he does it in ways that we don't quite understand. When we don't know what to ask for, the Holy Spirit of God goes to the Father for us. So I want you to think about this. As a Christian, when you pray, it is not just you that is involved in talking to God. It's not just you. When you go to God in prayer, the Holy Spirit of God goes with you to pray for you and with you. And he helps you when you don't know what to ask of God, when you don't know what to say to God. Has that ever been anyone's experiences where you go to God and you have no idea what to say? And the truth is the Holy Spirit goes and intercedes for you. Very often in our weakness, we don't know what to ask God. We don't know what to ask God when things are going well for us. We may not know how to pray according to God's will, but what we see here is the Spirit knows. And he goes with us. And Paul says in verse 27, he who searches hearts, which is likely referring to God the Father, he says, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When you don't know what to pray for in regards to God's will, the Holy Spirit prays on your behalf and intercedes for you as a saint in Jesus Christ. John Stott observes that when we pray, there are three people that are involved in that process. Us, in our weakness, and who don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit, who knows what God's will is and helps us in our prayers. And God the Father, the one who hears and the one who answers our prayers. Amen. Even in our weakness, even in the most personal aspect of our relationship with God, which is prayer, God is present and God is helping us in those moments. And as we get to verse 28 we see that God is not only working and helping you when you pray. He's also working in everything else in your life, not just in prayer. That when we are at our weakest, when we are at our lowest, we not just need God's help in praying, we also need assurance that God is working in our sufferings, in our current experiences. We need to be reminded and to know that this suffering isn't without purpose. And that he's using this for something that's beneficial for us, even when we can't see it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is an incredibly popular and comforting verse for us as Christians. And it's comforting first because it reminds us that we are called by God and that we are loved by God according to his purpose. Amen. 
We were called. We were loved by God before we even knew him. And so we, in that first part, we love God in response to his love and to his calling over us. It's also comforting because it teaches us that God is working in all things. Not just the easy things, not just the good things. He's working in all things. That there's nothing outside of God's control or that he's only working in the easy things. It says that God here is working in all things Together, there's nothing outside of his sovereignty. And it's finally comforting because he's working in all things for good. There's a lot of suffering in this world that we may observe or that we may experience firsthand. And we struggle to see the good in it with our own understanding. We struggle to understand that diagnosis. We struggle to understand that loss of someone close. And yet somehow, in God's divine sovereignty and in God's divine goodness, he is working in our sufferings and in our weaknesses for good. We can think of Joseph when he speaks to his brothers in Genesis 50. Joseph. Where after he was sold into slavery and ultimately becomes the second in command of Egypt. He stands in front of them and says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Though we may not see it, God is working in our suffering, and it is a good work. And it may not be a good work, And that after the sufferings, we become the second in command of Egypt. It may not be a good work and that we become rich or that our external circumstances get a whole lot better after our sufferings. Maybe those things happen. Maybe it works out for us circumstantially. But that's not the good that God is ultimately concerned with when it comes to our trials. The good that God produces in sufferings of his children is what we see in verse 29. And that is the purpose of this and the good work that God does for us is that we be conformed to the image of his son. Perhaps we don't become rich. Perhaps our circumstances do not become incredibly better. But God uses all things, easy or difficult, to help us become more like his son, Jesus. God uses all things to help us grow in love and dependence on him and so that we may grow in obedience to him. And so the reality is, if we become more like Jesus in our trials and our circumstances do not get better, that is a good work that God is doing in us because we're coming coming more like his son. So we see that the future glory is on its way And we see that God is helping us in the present as we groan and as we endure suffering. But then the question may be, how can we know for sure that God is helping us? How can we know? How can we be assured that we're going to make it? How can we know with certainty that God will help us make it to the end? Our last observation is that Christians have timeless assurance. Timeless assurance. 
After Paul says that God is working all things together for the good of those he has called, he then provides support for this statement in verses 29 and 30. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What we see in these two verses is what many people like to call the chain of salvation. Because it describes how Christians have come to saving faith in Jesus. And it describes how all of these works of God link together in assuring our salvation. And so first of all, notice in verse 29 how Paul describes believers in Jesus as those whom God foreknew. Foreknowledge or omniscience is an attribute of God and that he knows everything that will happen now. He knows all things and he knows what's going to happen in the future. But in this verse, that's not the kind of foreknowledge that Paul is talking about. What foreknew means here is that before anyone ever came to faith in Jesus, God chose them to come to him before they even existed. So in other words, before you were born and before you committed yourself to God, God committed himself to you. And this foreknowledge, this calling from God, is not some cold, distant call. It's a loving, intimate, personal call and covenant that God has put on his people. This word for foreknowing is the same word that the Old Testament uses for God's covenantal affection and love over the people of Israel. And what we can take heart in, this affection, this love, this covenant is now over us who know and believe in Jesus. And so what a beautiful truth that before we even existed, before we even took a breath, God loved us and chose us to come to know him. That the ultimate assurance of your salvation is not that you came to God when you were younger, but the ultimate assurance is that God came to you before you even knew him. And because believers in Jesus have been intimately chosen by God to know him, that means that our destiny has already been determined by God. Verse 29, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This word provides no controversy in any way among churches, right? Predestined is very easy to explain. No debates whatsoever, right? (laughs) This word causes a lot of intense conversations within the church. But the most fundamental truth that we can know from verse 29 is this. God has decided the destiny of believers in Jesus, and that destiny is them becoming more like Jesus. That is what we are predetermined as Christians to be, more like Jesus, who is described here as the firstborn among many brothers. So Jesus is perfect and without sin, and God's desire for us, God's destiny for us, is that we are also to be perfect and without sin. And that process will not be completed in this life, but we can be assured that that process will indeed be completed. And the biggest reason why is because God has already determined that for us. 
So what an assurance for that. Our destiny, our life, our outcome as Christians has already been decided by God. It's not decided by you ultimately. It was decided by God. And Paul continues in this chain of salvation by saying in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. This brings to fruition God's past provision for us. And that if God has chosen us to come to him before we are alive, us coming to faith in Jesus is us answering his call now at the present time. And so then it says, and those whom he called, he also justified. When we as sinners answer the call of God to come to his son Jesus, we are then justified and declared righteous, not because we have earned it, but because the righteousness of Jesus has been fully given to us. If we were in the courtroom of God with just ourselves, we would be pronounced guilty and we would face eternal punishment for our sins. But as we come to faith in Jesus, he then represents us in that courtroom in front of his heavenly father. And so when God the Father sees us, he no longer sees our sins, he sees the righteousness of Jesus in our lives. And because of that, we are justified. And so now in the courtroom, God not only declares us not guilty because of Jesus, but he also declares us righteous because of Jesus. I love how Pastor James Lynch described it. We are not only justified as if we never sinned, we are also justified as if we've always been righteous. And those whom God justified, it says, he also glorified. This passage is timeless assurance in that one, before we even existed, God chose us and determined our destiny as Christians. It's also assuring in that now, through the answer of his call to salvation, we have now been justified by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, in the present. And third, in the future, we will be glorified as we will share in the glory of Jesus after sharing in his suffering for this long. And this chain of salvation are all links that come together and the anchor at the end of that chain is Jesus Christ. The assurance does not in any way come from you and your works, but the assurance is that God chose you in the past, he has saved you and is sustaining you now, and that his destiny for you will surely come to pass. Notice how all these words are all past tense, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Paul's speaking of these things as if they've already happened. Because this isn't something that God might do. This isn't something that God is likely to do. This is something that God certainly will do. And our assurance of that is the truth that Jesus Christ in this present day is alive and is sitting at the right hand of God. And there will be a day where he will come back and take us with him to share in his glory. 
and that we will be holy and blameless like him. And the suffering of creation and the suffering of his people will end. And on that day when we are with Jesus, we will say differently from verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of the past time is not worth comparing with the glory that has been revealed to us in the present. Amen. The future glory is coming. And we as Christians can be assured of that. A few applications to close. Our first application is, wait well. We must wait well as Christians. As I read a text like this, I realize how bad of a waiter that I really am. Paul says that we are to wait eagerly and to also wait with patience. And I find myself often Honestly, just not even thinking much of the future glory. I can get so caught up in the day-to-day, week-to-week responsibilities, and I can be so weighed down by the present sufferings that I just forget that this life is not actually my destiny. This is not actually what I was made for. This present time is not what eternity will be like for those who trust in Jesus. And so first of all, as Christians, we must wait with an eagerness for the future glory. We should be excited that one day these present sufferings will be no more and that our future glory with Jesus will far outweigh our hardships. We must be eager for that and we must pursue that day with an urgency about us, with an excitement about us. Let us keep our eyes on the future and wait eagerly for the future glory. And by the way, this also means that we ought to grow in eagerness that others around us share in this future as well. So I'll just address this little snippet of predestination. You being foreknown and predestined by God is not an excuse to not share the gospel with others. There are many others who have been foreknown and have been predestined to come to faith in Jesus and to answer his call And that also means that God has predetermined people to share the gospel message with them. Perhaps you are that person in your workspace, in your classroom, in your family. Be eager to not just pursue this future glory. Be eager to share this future glory with others and to share this good news. So as we eagerly wait for the future glory to come, let us eagerly share the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, in the present. But in order, to attri- in order to avoid trying to rush God's plan, let us also wait with patience. Let us be patient. Let's not try and come up with a date to when Jesus is going to come back. You will be wrong. You'll probably be seen as crazy and as a bit of a heretic, so let's just avoid that right now. And let us not grow bitter or angry that God has not come to restore all things in the timing that we envisioned or that we planned. Let us be patient in that God's timing is better than ours. And let us be patient that God's plan will happen. It will come, but it will come in his timing. The second application is pray now. Pray now. 
when we are weak, when we are groaning, when we are hurting, this is the hardest time for us to pray to the Lord. But I hope that we see that in a passage like this is that it is in those weaker moments where God is most personally involved in your prayers. That in your weaknesses, that is when God is closest with you. Not just in your trials working in them, but it's also in your prayers and talking to him. That in your weaknesses, when it is hard for you to pray, God's not distancing himself from you. He's drawing closer to you through the Holy Spirit. So when praying is hard, when you are weak, pray anyways. It's okay that you don't know exactly what to pray for. The Holy Spirit knows. The Holy Spirit is with you and he is interceding for you when you don't know what to say. When the chemo is taking away your strength. When the loss of your spouse is at the forefront of your mind. When that news of that car crash or that shooting comes up on the news. When that temptation, when that sin is harassing you. Go to your father. Go to him. Let the Spirit step in and help you with what needs to be said. Whether you are at your weakest or whether you are at your strongest, go to God always. Let your life be filled with prayer, whether it be in the long, isolated, quiet moments in the morning or whether it be in the short, quick, urgent, in-between moments of life. Fill these times with your heavenly father. He will meet you where you are. The final application is be assured. Be assured. Christian, you were ultimately chosen by God to know him before you were even born. Your destiny is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And that destiny is not in your hands. Your destiny is in God's hands, which is much more assuring. If it were in our hands, our destiny would not be that. He has called you to himself. He has justified you with the righteousness of Jesus and the future glory that you will share with Jesus is inevitable. It's going to happen. Your salvation in Jesus Christ is secure now. And your future with Christ is secure. The Holy Spirit testifies in you that you are a child of God. And your longing for the restoration of all things is also a testimony of God's presence working in you. Do not let your assurance be shaken by the trials of this world. The future glory is not only coming, but God is helping you and working now in all things for your good. Just know that God is so personally and intimately involved in every aspect of your salvation that you have no reason to doubt his hand over you.
Christian, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. You're going to make it to the end. He will help you now and he will carry you to the end where you are glorified with your king and with your brother, Jesus Christ. Be assured your destiny in Christ is not likely, it's a certainty. You're going to make it. And for those who do not know Jesus, who have not trusted their lives with him, I would be wrong if I did not say it this morning. These promises do not apply to you. They don't apply to you. This applies only to those who have acknowledged that they are a sinner before a holy God and have come to his son Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. This promise applies to Christians. It doesn't apply to unbelievers. But you, unbeliever, these promises can apply to you right now this morning. You are a sinner who cannot be saved by your own works. But God has sent his son Jesus to die for your sins and so that you may have forgiveness and that you may have eternal life if you put your faith in him. And so I invite you this morning, come to Jesus. Experience the first fruits of salvation now so that you may too, along with us, may long for the future glory, and so that you may too share in the future glory. I'm going to call the worship team up here, and they are going to sing one last song, and the song is called Hymn of Heaven. And the second verse in the chorus, I think, fits very, very well with the passage this morning. It says... And every prayer that we prayed in desperation, the songs of faith that we sang through doubt and fear, in the end, we will see that it was worth it when he returns to wipe away our tears. There will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more. Standing face to face with he who died and rose again, holy, holy is the Lord. Christian, your suffering is totally worth it because the future glory is going to far outweigh what you are experiencing now. So trust in God with your tears now and trust in God that the future glory that you are going to share with his son Jesus is going to be so much better. He will wipe away your tears from your eyes. He will fully redeem you spiritually and physically. And you will look back and you will praise him saying, holy, holy is the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we long for this day. All of us in here, either now or perhaps in the past and perhaps definitely in the future, many of us in here are suffering. We're hurting. Either personally with our own struggles or just looking around us and seeing the brokenness of this world. 
Lord, we need to keep our eyes on this hope, this certainty that, Lord Jesus, you are coming back, that you are alive, you are on the throne, you are the king of all things, you are our savior. And Father, I pray that in this moment, in this time now, that we may be encouraged by the present help that we experience through your, your Holy Spirit, but that we may take heart knowing that this present suffering is almost over and that the future glory, this time where we will be restored, where we will be fully adopted into your kingdom as your children is coming. We are already your children now and Lord, we long to go home. And I pray, Lord, that as we give you our tears, as we give you our weaknesses, as we give you our sufferings, you not only meet us presently, but you help us long for that day when you will wipe every tear from our eyes. We long for this day. We hope for this day. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.